is something that happens in many families. It's a difficult time. It's the day when an adult child has to tell his dad, Dad, I can't let you drive anymore. It's just too dangerous. You can't handle a vehicle like you used to. Or a day when parents have to sit down with their children and tell them that dad has a new job. They're going to have to move, leave their friends, leave their church, leave everything that has become normal to them. Or a day when a child leaves home and mom feels like she's been fired from the very core focus of her whole life. Or a day when you receive a challenging diagnosis and all of a sudden the focus of your entire existence changes overnight. Maybe the hardest of all transitions, saying goodbye to a parent, a husband, a wife, or a child for the very last time on this earth. Job loss, career changes, rebellious children, financial catastrophe, self-inflicted catastrophe through sinful or unwise choices, downsizing your lifestyle, Divorce, loss of important relationships, our lives are characterized and they're marked by transitions, by things that change. And even positive transitions have elements of anxiety, have elements of fear and grief attached to them. And so here in the book of Numbers, we've been focused on the theme of spiritual maturity. And what I'd like to look at this evening is spiritual maturity through transitions, through these changes, This is very important because an inability to deal with transitions, maybe even a refusal to deal with transitions in a God-honoring way, this can lead to all kinds of consequences. It can lead to depression, to anger, being withdrawn. It can lead to physical problems. It can lead to blame shifting to accuse others for your pain. It can lead to a bitter spirit. It can lead to pride. It can lead to arrogance. As if precious you doesn't deserve to go through these changes, many, many potential pitfalls And when transition happens instantly and without warning, we can be caught off guard and have a lot of difficulty navigating those very murky waters. And so tonight, using our text in Numbers chapter 20, chapters 20 and 21, I'd like to talk to you about how to trust the Lord through transitions, how to trust the Lord through transitions. Now, since we interrupt the book of Numbers every other week, we need to get caught up to the people of Israel. They've escaped Egypt. They've been given the law of God. They've been formed officially now into God's chosen nation. 18 months later, in the sixth month of the second year after the Exodus, Moses sent the 12 spies into Canaan. And we talked about this a, a while back. Ten of them were unfaithful and wanted to return to Egypt. And so God judged Israel because Israel followed the ten. They wanted to return. They were scared to move forward. God judged Israel with a decree that the entire first generation would die in the wilderness. The second generation would then obey God and take the land given to their forefather, Abraham. Then we saw death in the wilderness in Numbers 15 through 19. Numbers 15 through 19 takes place basically over the span of the third to the 39th year that they would wander until the first generation died. So 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 takes place over basically 36, 37 years or so. They're wandering in the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea where they could expect about two inches of rain per year. And so they would need God's help. You recall though that God was very merciful to them. Their, their clothes didn't wear out. Their bodies were immune in some way to the natural consequences of the wilderness God continued giving them the miraculous manna. There's really no human explanation for Israel's survival in this wilderness at at all. They should have all died, not just the first generation. We know that there was three million or so of them wandering around here for these decades. They should have all died. They should have all been doomed. In fact, to this day, in the area that they are wandering, you can't possibly support that number of people in the northern Sinai wilderness, you can't build a city there without massive, massive irrigation. It's not able to support sedentary life. There are nomads there to this day, but there's just a few. There aren't that many. Certainly you couldn't support three million people. But God gave them miraculous water. He gave them miraculous food, and he provided for them in many ways that were supernatural. And so they settled into some semblance of normal As normal as wandering in the wilderness could be, they wandered from the third to the 39th year, 
And now in chapter 20, we come to the first month of the 40th year. And the events of chapters 20 and 21 take place over a period of about six months. And so we're coming to the end of this time of their wandering. And in these six months now, all kinds of changes are going to start happening. Parts of their culture that they were long used to are now going to go away. In just one year's time, they would begin their conquest of Canaan. So God begins transitioning them. He begins making changes, getting them ready. And Israel is going to have to learn anew to trust the Lord when everything is changing. Israel has been ordained by God to to be the means by which his redemptive plan for the world would come about. And now their time of discipline in the wilderness is nearly done. It's time to get prepared. But first, some pain and difficulties, some changes have to happen. Some transitions. And in these two chapters, we're going to just see transition after transition very, very quickly, one after the other. And they're going to provide for us some very excellent spiritual counsel on how we ought to handle transitions, wisdom in how to handle these great changes as the Lord sovereignly brings them about in your own life. And so I'd like to be as practical as we can tonight. I'd like to show you seven helps to engage with transition. Seven helps to engage with transition, to navigate changes. The first help we'll call, remember the best things. Remember the best things. Chapter 20, verse 1. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. You remember Miriam? She's the sister of Moses. And Aaron, there's not much space devoted to her, but she was well known among all of Israel. She was beloved. She certainly had her moment of failing when along with her brother Aaron, she challenged Moses' leadership in Numbers chapter 12. And you remember that God disciplined her with a horrible disease, probably leprosy of some sort. Moses interceded wildly for her though. This is his sister. And he says in Numbers 12 verse 13, Oh God, please heal her, please. The Lord would heal her, but he made Miriam stay outside the camp as someone unclean for seven days, and then God would heal her. But what did Israel do? Well, the Holy Spirit in his account here makes sure that we remember Numbers twelve fifteen says, and the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again. They waited for her. Three million people waiting for her. She wasn't cut off from her people. She wasn't abandoned. They waited. What do we know about Miriam? Well, put yourself in the sandals of those who did know her. How did Moses feel about Miriam? She's the sister who watched over him as a baby when their mother placed Moses in a basket in the Nile River to hide him from Pharaoh's murderous intentions of the baby boys of Israel. Miriam is the one that that saw Pharaoh's daughter find the baby and went and suggested that she go find a nurse for the baby and she brought Moses back to his mother. Because of Miriam, Moses got to spend his most tender years at the knees of his own mother. How did the women of Israel feel about Miriam? She was very much their spiritual leader. After the triumph of the Red Sea, Exodus 15 records that Miriam set the tone of worship. Exodus 15, beginning in verse 20, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Listen to this. And Miriam sang to them. She sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And Miriam was still beloved by God. Yes, he had disciplined her earlier, but he loved her. She was among the generation that was to die in the wilderness, and yet she would be among the very last to do so. She was faithful to the Lord to wander with her people for 37 years in the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea, And so God himself makes certain that she is remembered. She is the only woman of that generation whose death is memorialized in Scripture. She's the only one. And she's not remembered as Miriam, the woman to whom God gave leprosy for seven days. That's long forgotten. That's long forgiven. She would be remembered as the prophetess, the songstress, the sister of the divinely chosen high priest Aaron, of the divinely chosen prophet of God, Moses. And so Israel is beginning to experience their transition. They're transitioning with the death of an icon among them. 
if you remain part of the same local church for many decades, there are certain pillars of the church that when they die, a palpable difference is made. Miriam was a mainstay of the nation of Israel, and she's remembered by God himself. Listen, when the Lord brings a transition your way, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative transition, there's a sense in which you don't know how much to look forward, and you don't know how much to look back. And we don't know what to do, but the Lord has built us to look back for a time, even as we're looking forward. And a great way to do that is to remember the best things. That's what I just did of Miriam. We remember the best, to speak of the good times, to speak of the blessings, to speak of the things that the Lord has done, to relive them to a certain degree. That's, that's the way we sort of begin the process of transitioning and moving on. And it's actually also an opportunity to forget the more difficult things that have gone before. Transitions are a great opportunity to start afresh in many ways, to forget those difficult things. Very famous story in the 16th century, theologian John Wesley an Arminian, believing in the ability of mankind in salvation, and evangelist George Whitfield, a Calvinist, holding to the power of God in salvation, they had written letters to each other. They had preached strong rebukes to each other. Their letters were printed in the newspaper. And so you'd read one, and then you'd read the other, and they were having this debate. And this was a public debate. It was a heated debate, and it went on for years. But George Whitfield, he died over 20 years before Wesley. And one of Wesley's followers thought that Wesley would be happy about this. And he asked him, do you think we shall see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? And Wesley answered, no, I do not. I think he'll be so near the throne and you and I so far away that we shall not be any nearer to him. We shall not be in his sight. What was Wesley doing? He remembered the best things. All the debates were forgotten. All the disagreements gone. He looked back and he remembered the best things. And so when you're transitioning, remember the best things. Here's a second help. Lean on future hope. Lean on future hope. Chapter 20, verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. And then they began grumbling in detail. I won't read it to you, but they basically said, We're going to die. All our animals are going to die. There's no place to plant our crops. There's no water to drink. The Hebrew is, nah, 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 nah. They just complain, gripe, moan. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now, stop right there and don't look at verse 8. From other experiences in the book of Numbers and in Leviticus, what do we expect the Lord to say? We expect him to say, Oh, they're going to get it now. Moses, move out of the way. I'm going to just smash this people, and I'm going to start over with you. God's already offered that several times. But what does he say this time? Verse 8. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. How compassionate of the Lord, how kind. In this particular case, God doesn't rebuke Israel. He hears them. And he doesn't say, you should have had more faith. He doesn't say, toughen up, you wimps. He doesn't say, look out, here comes the fire. He simply says, I'll give them water. But Moses takes a very different tone than the Lord. Remember that Moses has just lost his sister Miriam, his beloved only sister. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that what happens now is placed right after Miriam's death in the text. We would completely understand the probability that Moses has been sad, depressed. He's at his wit's end. A time of difficulty after losing his sister. The Lord is showing compassion, kindness, and mercy. But Moses lets whatever's going on inside him get to him. And he does not accurately reflect the Lord. Chapter 20, verse 11. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock, uh-oh, 
God didn't tell Moses to strike the rock. He told him to speak to the rock. But that wasn't the worst thing. Moses was God's appointed shepherd of Israel and the tone that God was taking with them in his perfect judgment was a tone of compassion and mercy. But Moses lost his way as a shepherd. He lost his focus as the spiritual leader and now anger had overtaken him. He didn't just strike the rock once, he struck it twice. And now anger had entered into his shepherding. And God was not happy with this. God says in verse 12 that Moses didn't believe in him specifically, quote, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. In other words, God intended to give kindness, to give compassion, to give understanding, to be gracious and to give water and to hear their panic, to to have great, great kindness with them. But Moses did not accurately portray God. Instead, He was impatient when God was patient. He was judgmental when God was gracious. He was unkind when God was being kind. Quoting Isaiah 42, verse 3, which is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew records what kind of shepherd Jesus was. In Matthew 12, verse 20, quote, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Meaning when the sheep are at the point of breaking in despair at the end of themselves, that's probably not the time to be hard, to be harsh and demanding as a shepherd. There's to be tenderness and kindness. And look, for me as a shepherd, the thing I grieve the most in my own ministry are the times when I failed in this regard. All faithful shepherds fail in this regard at times. Did you notice something here though? The people were wrong. They were wrong. They were not trusting the Lord yet again, but in this case, the Lord simply listened to them. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't punish them. He heard their distress, and he simply determined to help them. It's like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us with one another, what do you do with the weak person, the one who's spiritually struggling? Help them. Help the weak. But rather than putting Israel in his sights, God takes aim at Moses and Aaron. Chapter 20, verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Do you realize the sentence that God has just given Moses and Aaron? This is devastating. They've been waiting 40 years leading the people of Israel as the prophetic leader, as the high priest. They were going to lead this second generation into Canaan. They were going to see the promised land. They were going to be able to finally settle down and see God create this national entity of Israel in their own land. But now they won't see it. The best God offers Moses is a short view. Deuteronomy 34 records God taking Moses up to the top of Mount Pisgah to show him all the land, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And then Moses dies on that mountain. And even in that, God was gracious. There's basically one month of the year that you can see from the top of Mount Pisgah all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And that's the end of February, beginning of March. And that's exactly when God took Moses up to Mount Pisgah to see literally all of Israel all the way to the sea. Now, the lesson is to lean on future hope. Why on earth would God show Moses the promised land if he wasn't going to let him go? Because in the economy of God, your lifetime is never the end of his plan for you. That's never the end. Listen, for the Christian, and this is so encouraging to me, I hope it is to you, for the Christian, there's no such thing as a permanently negative transition. There's no such thing. All the terrible transitions are tempered by the fact of their temporary nature. This is why one-third of our Bible is prophecy. We're meant to be steeped in the hope of the future. We're meant to revel in the fact that what is today will not be tomorrow. You want to get through a negative transition, a difficult time with more grace and more dignity? That's easy. Read the book of Daniel. Read the book of Zechariah. Read the minor prophets. Read the book of Revelation. Get your mind on the future when the present isn't going so well. As a matter of fact, God took Moses to the top of a great mountain to look into the promised land, 
Later, God would take Moses to the top of a great mountain in the promised land. It would be 1,500 years later. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them who joined him, Moses and Elijah. Now, Matthew 17 doesn't tell us this, but I have to wonder if when supernaturally God, the Lord Jesus Christ, brought Moses and Elijah to the top of this great mountain in the promised land, I wonder if Moses took just a minute to go and just look around. He was finally there. Listen, for the Christian, there is no such thing as a permanent negative transition. It doesn't exist. So lean on future hope. Let me give you a third help. We'll call this one, improve your humble response. Improve your humble response. Chapter 20, verse 14 Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. The nation of Edom is called Israel's brother. Why is that? Well, because Edom is descended from Esau, while Israel is descended from Esau's twin brother, Jacob, the sons of Isaac, son of Abraham. Now, Jacob and Esau, as you know from Genesis, they had some hard times between them, particularly when Jacob stole Esau's inheritance, kind of ruined his life. But after many years, they made peace. And in fact, Genesis records that they buried their father Isaac together in unity. So Israel has every right to believe that Edom would grant them help and passage. But that's not going to happen. Verse 18 But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway. And if we drink of your water, I am my livestock and I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Notice, by the way, how they're using these first person pronouns, you and I, like we're brothers, not two nations, but brothers. Verse 20, but he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Edom came out with this large army. Keep in mind that Israel had over 600,000 fighting men. So taking out little upstart Edom would have been like squishing a mosquito. Yet another transition. Israel is on their way finally to the promised land. Edom is on the direct route. So now is it time to sharpen your swords and to fight their way through? No, because the fact that Edom was family was more important than getting their way. And so in verse 21, we see, Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. They went away. Very clearly, Israel could have smashed Edom, but instead Israel turns back to find a different route. They humbly turn around. They accepted the wishes of Edom, and they left quietly. One of the things about transitions, particularly ones that cause pain, is that this pain can make you feel victimized, it can make you feel traumatized, agonized, and it might be true. Those things might, in fact, be true. But here, Israel provides such a great example of simply turning away from what could have been a bloody conflict, and they quietly humble themselves. I've talked to many people in the midst of a painful transition and I have noticed that as sinners, we have a tendency to believe that we don't deserve this transition, that we don't deserve this difficulty. We don't deserve to go through something we didn't want to go through. And that might be true from a human standpoint. But listen, humility and deference, they go a long way toward peace, toward tranquility. If you can honestly say, I am humble enough that the Lord can just kick me around like a soccer ball and I'm okay with that. There's great peace in accepting whatever comes. 
By the way, it gets worse between Edom and Israel 800 years later when the Babylonians were conquering Jerusalem and many Israelites were fleeing for their lives. The Edomites were catching them. They were catching the refugee Israelites and turning them over to the Babylonians and then the Edomites captured entire Israelite villages and took them over. Not a good thing to do against God's chosen nation. In four long oracles in the Old Testament, Isaiah 34, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 35, and the entire book of Obadiah, the descendants of Edom are prophesied that they will be crushed. They will be disciplined to the dust. Israel would be vindicated. Now, what's the lesson there? The lesson is is that humble yourself now and God will exalt you later. Or as Peter said to the suffering Christians in the first century, in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Your time of transition may include some humbling. Let it improve your humble response. Here's a fourth help. During a time of transition, grieve the hard losses. Grieve the hard losses. As Christians, we're not called to simply put a happy face on everything and, and, and define joy as lack of negative emotion. That, that's not the case. You think Miriam and her death was hard? It just gets worse. We have yet another massive transition for Israel and Moses. Chapter 20, verse 22. And they journeyed from Kadesh... And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor on the border of the land of Edom, Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor. Now this part is hard. As part of the discipline on Moses and Aaron, it's now time for Aaron to die. And the people don't know this. They don't know. Not only is he to die now without seeing the promised land, Aaron goes up the mountain in his priestly vestments. And what the people don't see is that they're removed. They're put on his son Eleazar. And so Aaron will not die as the high priest of Israel. He will simply die as... Moses' brother. There were just two witnesses to his death. His brother Moses, his son Eleazar. In the sight of all the congregation, the three of them went up the mountain with Aaron in his priestly garments one last time. And they came back without Aaron and Eleazar now in the priestly garments. Aaron was the mediating high priest through whom God's people would Fellowship with the Lord along with Moses. Aaron was the closest thing they had to hearing from God. He was the closest thing they had to seeing their God, to hearing from God. And listen, the people of God get very attached to their ministers. And Aaron was no exception to that. He'd been with them all the way back in Egypt. He'd been their high priest for 40 years. And so how did Israel respond? Chapter 20, verse 29 And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. They wept. They grieved. And what about poor old Moses? Now it's just him. No sister, no brother. It's the end of an era that had lasted decades. And did you know that the New Testament gives a tribute of sorts to the high priest Aaron? The New Testament gives Aaron the tremendous privilege by comparing him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of the honor of being the high priest, the mediator between God and man, Hebrews 5 verse 4 says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron did. And the very next verse, Hebrews 5 verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God. Me personally, if I was Aaron in heaven, I would have a copy of Hebrews 5, 4, and 5 framed and put in my living room because I'm compared to Jesus in the Bible. But for Israel at Mount Hor, where they had just lost the only high priest they had ever known, they stopped everything. They ceased from all their travels, from the coming conquest, 
And they wept for Aaron for 30 days. Nearly every transition involves grief at some level. Even mostly positive transitions. One of the things the elders of Grace Bible Church have learned is that when we receive new members into our church, almost always, along with the joy of joining Grace, there is mixed in some grief of what has come before in their lives. Almost every time. Very rarely is it simply 100% joy. You know when that's usually the case? It's when it's a brand new believer because they don't have an experience before to look back on. But this is very important. You can't deny your need to grieve. You can't put a happy face on when it's time to be sad. You need to shed tears. You need to weep. You need to cry. You need to feel the loss of what was even as you look ahead to what will be. I don't think you can make an effective transition without living out the grief part. It's at the core of who we are, living in a sinful world. It's something we have to do. But then the grieving allows you then to balance that pain with a, with a fifth help, something that becomes more positive, and this help we'll call excel at your gratitude. Excel at your gratitude. Now between the griefs of death and disobedience, we come to this shining blessing Chapter 21, verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Now, for the first time in decades, Israel once again had a taste of what it was like to be the instrument of God, to have God bless and prosper them in battle in a place where they were surrounded by nations that hated them, sort of like today, by the way. They obeyed the Lord here by not taking bounty for themselves, but totally destroying their unholy enemy who was occupying land which legally belonged to Israel. And so they named the site of the battle Hormah, which means destruction, Why why is that important? Well, it's a memorial that they had obeyed the Lord and God had blessed them. In other words, they named the place a name that reminded them of God's kindness to protect them in battle. Naming it Hormah, destruction, was an act of gratitude, an act of thankfulness. Israel would have another chance for gratitude, although under more difficult circumstances. Chapter 21, verse 4 From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Same tune, new key. And we hear this over and over again. And God, ever creative in his discipline, this time sends fiery serpents. Never test God's ability to destroy you with creativity. People are being bitten. They're dying. And here we go again. Chapter 21, verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. I wonder if Moses thought, Duh, we've done this before. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Did they learn a lesson? At least for the moment, it appears that they did. The next six verses chronicle the various places that Israel camped as they headed closer and closer to the land that God had promised to them. Chapter 21, verse 16. And from there they continue to Be'er, which is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. But remember before the serpents, the people griped about their lack of water. Now that the Lord has brought them to a well, now that he's once again, yet again, for the umpteenth time, proven his faithfulness, now they express gratitude. Verse 17, then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and their staffs. And from the wilderness, they went on to Matanah. 
the nation has a fresh, cool water source dug in the past by noblemen, and now God has given it to them to refresh them. And did you notice the lesson they learned? Instead of complaining, they sang. They sang. They lifted their voices in song. So what's the lesson for us? Sing your way to peace. Sing your way to contentment. Sing your way to tranquility. It's an act of gratitude. And perhaps the best time for us to excel at gratitude is when you perceive that maybe you have less to be thankful for than you once had. Because yes, sometimes the Lord does take things away from us. Gratitude, though, is the salve that heals the wounds of transition Being grateful for the transition itself. Being grateful for the trust that it's making you exercise. Being grateful for exposing sin in your heart. That's what transitions will do. Being grateful that you exist to fulfill God's plan, not God existing to fulfill your plan. In the midst of a transition, gratitude is the drink of cool water. It's really very simple. How do you become grateful? In prayer, list everything you're thankful for. Everything you can be grateful for. And if you're overwhelmed again by angst and by worry, then do it again. If you're still overwhelmed, then do it again. And perhaps one of the lessons we learn during this time of transition is to get into the habit of excelling at gratitude. A time of gratitude with the Lord is a safe and protected place. It's a safe of refuge and calm. Can I put it this way? A time of gratitude before the Lord is your friend. It's a very friendly place to be, a friend you will go back to over and over again, a friend that never fails you. So excel at gratitude. Now listen, part of the reason that transitions can be so shattering to us is because we thrive on normalcy. We thrive on routine, on predictability. We're made that way. But transitions begin to pull the rug out from under the things that we're used to. Uh, the other night, for uh, some reasons that I won't go into, we had to move some of our living room furniture out for a little while, and our dog was, like, depressed. She's laying on the floor just, hmm, 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 because she didn't know what was going on. And we had to tell her, we'll move the furniture back. She didn't understand. We were trying to help her understand. We thrive on normalcy. We thrive on predictability. When we get our suitcases to go out of town for a couple of days, our dog starts going nuts because things are changing. You know, we're not much different. When things change, we start to have difficulties. So this is why we need a sixth help. Await a new normal. Await a new normal. Now Israel comes to another potential military situation The Amorites lived along the Transjordan, east of Canaan proper. Israel needed to pass through to get where they were going. And so once again, like they did with the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, Israel sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites. Chapter 21, verse 22. They'd sent messengers, verse 22. Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. Sounds very familiar. And just like the Edomites, King Sihon of the Amorites said no and brought out an army against Israel. Big mistake, because they're not family. Now, we don't have here in Numbers instructions from the Lord to Israel, but in Moses' account of this event in Deuteronomy 2, we get a very rare behind-the-scenes look, behind-the-curtain look of the sovereignty of God. Deuteronomy 2, beginning in verse 30, this is Moses recounting this event. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, that is the Amorites, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit, their sovereignty, and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he has this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Oh, behind the curtain of the sovereignty of God, God wanted Israel to own their land. And that's exactly what happened. They had no family connections to the Amorites to honor. And so Israel decimated the Amorites. They utterly defeated the nation. And at God's command, they judged this tremendously wicked nation. They killed them all as instruments of God's judgment. And listen, this would go down in Israel's history as one of their greatest victories ever. Why is that? Well, because Sihon was no joke. This wasn't some little nomad with a few soldiers. Verses 27 through 30 
records the Ballad of Sihon. It's the song of the legend of his conquest of the land of Moab. Sihon wasn't just a little regional king. He was the emperor of a mini empire. He had many, many armies. And this upstart rogue nation of Israel came and took it away in one day. Another king, Og of Bashan, stood in Israel's way. Once again at God's command, Israel defeated them. Chapter 21, verse 35. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left and they possessed his land. But now something astounding happens. Something wonderful. Remember that Israel has been living exclusively in tents for the past 39 years and 6 months. What's great about going on vacation? It's getting away from home. What's better than going on vacation, going back home? Can you imagine, ladies, that you can't ever stay set up? About the time you get your kitchen and everything just right, the presence of God from over the tabernacle moves and you go, oh, it's time to pack again. And you've been doing this for four decades. And now Israel gets to experience something none of them had ever known before. The first generation of Israel has completely died off now, but now this generation experiences something brand new, a new normal, a luxury which they had never known. Chapter 21, verse 31. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. For the first time ever, they owned something. They owned land. Verse 32 says they captured its villages. Very likely many of them were able then to take a small break from living in tents and they actually got to live in houses. I I would imagine men walking around just kind of pounding on the walls. Wow, this is a wall. You know, I can't walk through it like I do my tent. Israel had been homeless as a nation for decades. But now they, they had just a little taste. A little sense of normal, living in these villages and in houses. Now, by no means was Israel done yet. They would shortly move on again. But this time in the villages of the Amorites gave them a taste that God was going to bring them a new normal of how great it would feel to finally, finally be home. And the Lord knows you need normal. Why does he know that? Because that's how he made you. He made us to need normal. It's just that he needs to help you adjust to a new normal. But before you can get there, there are times during the transition where you can feel like it's never going to happen, that the new normal is never going to arrive, but it will. It will, and once again, the Lord will give you some form of routine, some form of normalcy, maybe not as fast as you would like, and maybe not designed exactly the way you would want, but He will be there the whole time. Darren read a portion of this this morning, but it made me think of Psalm 84, Psalm 84 is a psalm expressing the hearts of Levites who were traveling to the temple of God to serve. They would be called up for their turn to serve at various times of the year, and they would have to travel to Jerusalem to serve. And the psalm is a psalm of joy, it's a psalm of pleasure, but it could be a long journey. And it also speaks of the dry environment in which they needed to travel. They would have to go from one water source to another water source to another water source in this desert to make it to Jerusalem. Psalm 84, verse 6 says, And as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it to a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. And the psalmist has a name for these places of refreshment, these places of safety. Psalm 84, 7, They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. This is a picture of the traveler being refreshed by the Lord before hitting the uncertain roads of the desert once again. But the promise is is that God will always bring you to another place of strength, another place of refreshing, another place of power and joy and safety, always to a new normal, always to a place of respite. You can count on that. You can't count on how long it will last but you can count on it being there. Israel had a small taste of normal, but they weren't through yet. There's one more help as we face transitions. The seventh help, we'll call this one, embrace the great adventure. Embrace the great adventure. After possessing the villages of the Amorites, chapter 22, verse 1, and this is as far as we'll go tonight, 
Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. Listen, this is an epic verse. Because they can literally look across the Jordan River and they can now see their home. They can taste it. They're that close. Israel's getting ready for the real conquest of Canaan. Everything that's happened at this point has just been preparation. The last 15 chapters of Numbers takes place over just a few months. And now Israel is camped in the plains of Moab across the Jordan River from the city of Jericho. And you know the story from there. In a few short months, God will call upon Israel to fulfill his mandate to possess the land that he promised to Abraham, that he promised to Isaac, that he promised to Jacob. And the rest of the book of Numbers now will see them getting spiritually prepared, including dealing with some sin issues, to cross the Jordan, to conquer multiple people, starting with Jericho, one of the most heavily fortified cities in all the nations, with a, an impregnable wall, a double wall, in fact. Now they're battle-hardened. They've seen God's faithfulness in count, countless ways. And now it would soon be go time where 40 years of preparation now come to fruition as seen in the book of Joshua in the conquest of Canaan, beginning with Jericho. But it took this journey of faith to get Israel ready during all this time. God has brought you through various transitions and difficulties, and you'll face more. I mean, really, that's what our life is made up of. We go from strength to strength, and in between is everything else, right? But when you face another transition, the the lesson is embrace the great adventure. Embrace the great adventure. God will be faithful. God will be a help. And so I want to ask you a question. Because I don't want to come to the end of my life having lived my life in fear. I don't want to come to the end of my life having just finally being relieved that there's nothing left to be afraid of. My question is, what are you afraid of? What is your greatest fear? And this is not some pastor rhetorical question that I read in the book. This is what I really want you to think about. What is your greatest fear? What's at the top of the list? And it may take you some time to figure it out. You know why? Because we like to cover our fears with excuses. We like to cover our fears with self-righteousness. We like to cover our fears with our own interpretation of the fact that we're really just scared to death of something. The lesson of Numbers 21 and 22 would say, don't be dominated by those fears. Do not live by those fears. Identify them. Pray through them. Rebel against them. And ask God for courage in them. And then step forward. There is a process for dealing with transitions in a mature fashion. I've listed it for you. Remember the best things. Lean on future hope. Improve your humble response. Grieve the hard losses. Excel at gratitude. Await a new normal and embrace the great adventure. And while I would love to close in prayer right now, there is so much more to this text because there's one more kind of bonus lesson here. One more detail we need to consider. Something much bigger than these seven lessons about transitions. There's one more bonus lesson And that is that the transitions the Lord puts in front of you are never just about you. The transitions the Lord puts in front of you are never just about you. They're part of his bigger, sovereign, redemptive plan. Everything God does is interconnected. Romans 8, 28, that we know that all things work together for good. For God, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's real. Everything is connected. When Israel was undergoing these transitions, it wasn't just for some little Bible lesson for us to say, oh, I need to do better at transitions. That wasn't the purpose. There's a bigger picture. There's a larger scope. Why was God angry with Moses for striking the rock? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is giving the Corinthian church a warning that doing religious things, being associated with Christ, associated with Christianity, looking churchy is not a guarantee of final blessing. And he gives the Israelites in the wilderness as an example that they all experienced the blessings of being part of God's people and yet most of them died in the wilderness under the hand of God. Listen to Paul's illustration. 1 Corinthians 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, 
and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The one providing for them was Jesus Christ, in anticipation of his future earthly ministry, in which Christ would offer himself directly to Israel as their king. And what did Israel do when Christ the rock came to offer himself to them? Seven times in the New Testament, Psalm 118, verse 22 is referenced, saying that Christ became the stone, the rock that was rejected. What did Israel do with the rock? They struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock and receiving the waters of life. Why is Edom's refusal to give passage to Israel, why is that important? Edom becomes in Scripture representative of all nations who will reject God and reject Christ and reject His people. The book of Obadiah is devoted to the subject of the future destruction of Edom, but it shifts very quickly to the destruction of all the nations. Obadiah verse 15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. What is the day of the Lord that's spoken of here? Zechariah 14 says, Is the day that Christ returns to smite the nations with power. And verse 9 of Zechariah 14 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, Jerusalem, Israel, will be exalted above all the earth. The point is, Israel turned aside from Edom in humility, but Christ will come and fight on their behalf. And on behalf of, of Israel, the nations will be crushed on the iron hand of Christ as he treads the grapes of the winepress of the wrath of God the Almighty. Why is the death of Aaron important? The death of Aaron points to a larger end, a bigger picture, the end of the Aaronic priesthood, the order of Aaron. Psalm 110, verse 4, quoted also in Hebrews 5, verse 6, gives the decree of God, that God the Father, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, you remember, was the ancient king of the city of Salem, someday to become Jerusalem. He was a worshiper of God. He was a king. He was a priest who interacted with Abraham as God's representative to Abraham. The order of Melchizedek has precisely one member. It is the king of kings, Jesus Christ, who is also the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf to God for salvation forever and ever. There is no longer the order of priests after Aaron who offer animal animal sacrifices. There is now only the order of Melchizedek in Jesus Christ who offered himself as a sacrifice. Why is the bronze serpent important? When Israel was grumbling and God sent serpents to kill some of them and yet mercifully set up this bronze serpent by which they may be healed, there is a larger symbolic purpose here. God has lifted up this bronze serpent serpent to give life to all who would look and believe. Jesus said of himself and of his coming death on the cross in John 3, beginning in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. What's the very next verse, by the way? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Israel was given a picture of looking to their Savior, lifted up by God for their salvation. And why is the constant theme of water important? Numbers 21, 16, from there they continue to be air. That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. And after this, they sang the song of the well, a celebration of God's goodness and grace. They sang, spring up, O well. And in John 4, Jesus met the Samaritan woman. Where? At a well. And he told her in John 4, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God bringing them to water so kindly is a picture of graciously bringing them to the living water of Christ. And why is the defeat of Israel's enemies, Sihon and Og, important? Now, that, those little events pass by very quickly in Numbers, but Sihon, the king of the Amorites, is mentioned 36 times in the Old Testament in eight different books. He's a big deal. 
King Sihon becomes emblematic. He becomes a symbol of what happens to people who reject the house of Israel. He becomes a symbol of those who reject Israel and by implication reject the Savior of Israel who will ultimately be Jesus Christ. What could have Sihon done instead of fighting Israel? What could he have done? The law of Moses over four dozen times refers to the sojourner, the foreigner, the non-Israelite who comes into contact with God's people. And God's offer to them is that they may freely join his people through faith in Yahweh, through faith in God. In fact, Deuteronomy 10, beginning in verse 18, says God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What could Sihon have done? He could have worshipped Yahweh. And his nation would not only have been spared, but they would have come under the umbrella of the blessing of Israel. In the same way, Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, meaning the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, meaning to the Gentile, to the sojourner. In Christ, all may be welcomed. Can you imagine if King Sihon had gotten down on one knee before Moses and said, might we serve Yahweh? Might you save us from our sins? Might we be part of the army of God? And God would have received them. The Amorites would then become part of Israel. The rock, Edom, the bronze serpent, the water, Sion. You see how these two chapters alone point us to Christ. They point us to Christ, to the salvation from sin freely offered if we would but place our faith in Him who is the rock, who is the living water springing up, welling up to eternal life. The lesson is that the transitions you're dealing with are not isolated and they're not all about you. In the sovereign plan of God, they're interwoven into His overall plan. And so when you feel crushed into the dirt at times, you may take comfort and solace saying as you're crawling around through the dirt, somehow I'm a part of God's redemptive plan for the world and that's encouraging, that's amazing. And so with that knowledge, what should you do? Remember the best things, lean on future hope, improve your humble response, grieve the hard losses, excel at your gratitude, away the new normal and embrace the great adventure. Let it be okay to have that transition. Probably one of the hardest transitions in all the Bible is documented in the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is Jeremiah's funeral dirge for the destruction of his beloved Jerusalem some 800 years after the events of the book of Numbers. But he continues to hope in the Lord even in the midst of the most violent of transitions. And in the literary center, in the the high point, the middle of Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah writes in Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 22, Very familiar to us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Those are tremendous words of encouragement for you to have spiritual maturity through transitions. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you and we come to you now asking you for help. There's almost not a person in this room not dealing with some transition, either at the beginning, in the middle, toward the end. All of us are continuing to deal with the transition of living in a world that has been devastated by a disease, living in a world that now is showing the wickedness of mankind at a higher level than most of us have seen in our lifetimes with riots and rebellion and hatred at levels that are reminiscent of the time before the flood. Levels that make us pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. But then even on a personal level, we deal with difficulties like children leaving home and our bodies not doing what they used to do and relationships that are in more difficult places than they used to be. 
moving geographically, changing churches, all kinds of transitions that are difficult for us when we crave and we desire just to have a routine, just to have normal. But really, in all of our transitions, you are our rock. You are our steady place. You are our fortress. You never change. You are never blown by the winds of change. Teach us, Lord, to lean on you. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to embrace the great adventure of whatever you have before us, to walk by faith and not by sight, and to trust you that you know precisely what you're doing in your sovereign plan, and you will perfectly lead us home to that great and glorious day when transitions are done and we stand before you eternally, eternally grateful for bringing us home. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.